uh, plenty of studies have manifested the, the inimical effects of proximity bias, even though you may be working harder, you're at home, whereas I'm in the office and people think I'm working really hard, but I'm just schmoozing, I'm not getting anything done. It's natural to think that I'm the hard worker and you're not because you're out of sight, out of mind. So you know, previous books have touched on those subjects. And this is why The Nine is the fourth in a series of books on the future of work. My favorite books are the ones that make you think. You've scanned the headlines, read the articles, and liked the posts. Now listen to the experts themselves in the Future of Work podcast, presented by allwork.space. Are you ready? Phil, welcome to the Future of Work podcast. Really great to have you here with us today. Thanks for having me, Frank. Looking forward to our chat. That's my pleasure. And, and um, I've enjoyed the conversations we've had already. And uh, let me give our audience a little bit of a bio on your background. Um, Phil Simon is probably the world's leading independent expert on workplace collaboration and technology. He's a frequent keynote speaker and award-winning author of 14 books, most recently, The Nine, The Tectonic Forces Reshaping the Workplace. He helps organizations communicate, collaborate, and use technology more efficiently. He's featured in the Harvard Business Review, the MIT Sloan Management Review, Wired, NBC, CNBC, Bloomberg Business Week, and New York Times have all featured his contributions, and he hosts his own podcast, Conversation About Collaboration which if you haven't been paying attention to that, I would highly recommend. Phil, again, welcome. Really glad to have you. I know you were, have uh, been on uh, the, our podcast uh, some time ago uh, and our audience was quite delighted. Uh, so let's just jump right into it, if that's okay with you. Let's rock and roll. Okay. The nine, the tectonic forces reshaping the workplace. In your book, you reference Cisco, Dropbox, LinkedIn, others that are reimagining their workplaces. Explain to us exactly what you think they're doing or what you think they should be doing. So those are examples, Frank, as you know, of companies that are doing things correctly and have really leaned into this future of work and hybrid. If you go back to say Cisco, prior to the pandemic, their New York office broke down as follows, 70% of the space allocated to individual workspaces and 30% for more collaborative ones. Um, they've now inverted that. So it's mm -hmm. 70% for collaborative workspace and 30% for individual. So if you're going to the office, you should be meeting with people, collaborating, brainstorming, training sessions, getting to know your colleagues, whatever. You should not be putting your head down and coding or checking email or whatever. And Cisco is also, I think, particularly interesting because the folks there were really thoughtful about sensors, about reserving rooms, even about the geometry of the conference tables. So for example, historically, if you've gone into a conference room, there was a rectangular table. But if you are sitting at the end of that and someone is on, say, a Zoom call and the screen at the end of the... Um, room of a big zoom room or the hardware that microsoft zoom some of these companies make people have to go like this and that's not really normal to sit like that so they created this um, polygon type table that would be much more natural so you are sitting looking at someone like this 
as opposed to like this. So they really did some thoughtful research and spent a good deal of money creating an office really as a destination, Frank, and people will still need to go to the office. I'm a big believer that hybrid is the future. I've written that, about that in some of my previous books, but you need to make it purposeful. You, you can't expect people to be excited about going to the office if they're just going to sit on Zoom calls all day. In fact, people get really annoyed. Why couldn't I have done that from home? So it, it is forcing organizations to think about things in a different way than maybe the manners in which they become accustomed. But I thought that it was important in this book, just like my other ones, to provide stories and examples of companies doing these things rather than just preaching, do this, don't do that. That to me doesn't make as a reader uh, for good experience. No, no, I, I agree. You know, Cisco's interesting. Uh, they uh, created a, a product um, uh, called Telepresence uh, quite mm-hmm. a number of years ago. Yep, 1998. I remember we had that uh, when I worked at Merck and Company. It was cordoned off in the executive wing. and But, but I do think it was a really good a training ground, if you will, for setting up some of the things that you're talking about. Uh, and some technology companies have an advantage over other non-technology companies in this regard because they have been pioneers. So what about companies that are non-technology companies reimagining their workplace? Um, are you seeing the same, are you seeing them as leaders, followers, uh, in between? Because this is, the, the great majority of us don't necessarily work for the big 10 tech companies. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, um, in the chapter on inflation, um, I write about how there are structural issues in the economy that aren't going to be fixed with um, you know, macroeconomic policy or tax cuts. And we, and we can talk about that later if you like. But to answer your question, yeah, I mean, the, the notion that you have to be Google or Cisco or Amazon to embrace hybrid and remote work is absurd. Um, I mean, we've now seen go back 20 years of the prevalence of software as a service. I mean, it used to be that companies needed to spend millions of dollars on technology or systems or applications before people could use them, or they needed to hire their own IT staffs and run their own hardware. Well, thanks to cloud computing, they don't need to do that anymore. So uh, while tech companies may be pioneers, to your point, I, I, I agree with you. Uh, that doesn't mean that we can't learn a few things from them. And the technology now is so much more affordable, plus you know, co-working spaces, satellite offices. These are, thing, these are things that have been around for a long time. And certainly it's um, not something that requires any sort of programming background to take advantage of. No, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. And uh, a person like myself that's been in business for five and a half decades, uh, um, uh, I, when I started in business, uh, you had people entering technology and they were the only ones that understood it today, the layman, the individual user understands probably a thousand percent more than the technologist, even of 10 years ago. Uh, so we, we have so much more comfort as we go forward with these things. I think we'll see it. You mentioned inflation. That's an interesting thought because, um, inflation I won't say it's here to stay. It's always been with us in some form or another, just about. Um, and uh, I've been through half a dozen cycles, ups and downs. Uh, <clears throat> people are horrified today at housing prices. And I remember when the home mortgages were 14%. Yeah, late 70s, right? Okay, so, so uh, you know, the, the, 
we all get used to our own reality in, in very short periods of time. But how do you think that's going to impact the future of work and the workplace? Uh, I understand how it, underst- uh, how, it, how it impacts companies and s- the sales cycles of products. But how do you think it's actually going to impact the workplace uh, as we go into the future of work? Yeah, we could talk the entire show about it, so I'll just be brief. But in so many ways, many organizations for years offered nominal merit increases of 2 or 3% per year. Well, when inflation was 7 or 8% per year, just by staying at your company, you were receiving a de facto 5% decrease in pay. And there were organizations right. like my previous employer, the four years that I was there, didn't offer me any sort of increase. So eventually I saw my pay erode. And when it became obvious that I wasn't going to receive any kind of increase, I started wondering, you know, could I get something else? And that's important in the context of dispersion, the subject of chapter two, where we no longer have to move our families cross country to take a new job. We might have to commute two hours, once a quarter to an office or maybe once a week, but we really have made the world a lot smaller uh, with the pandemic and the prevalence of tools like Microsoft Teams, Slack, and Zoom. So companies can no longer say we're the only shop in town. Now there's a benefit to organizations. They could conceivably find talent anywhere in the world, but you know employees are more empowered. They're more willing to quit. We've seen this with the data behind the great resignation and the number of people stop, who want to stop working for the man and start their own businesses. I want to say that something like uh, 4.1 million small businesses, I think, got started in 2021 or 2022, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. So inflation is enormous from a labor point of view and also from an investment point of view. If it's cheap to borrow money, then organizations can expand not only in terms of the number of employees that they hire, but also in terms of construction and product launches and other sorts of investments. So inflation is a game changer and it really does underpin a lot of the other forces in the book. If, for example, employees are more expensive and they're asking for raises more frequently, then maybe it's going to accelerate the adoption of automation technologies that I discussed in one of the chapters or generative AI tools like chat GPT. So you don't write this book without covering the elephant in the room, which I would argue is inflation. It's just, I I don't see realistically how it's going to revert to 2% anytime soon. I think it's much more likely that it'll be four or 5% uh, for the indefinite future, especially with some of the geopolitical issues around uh, Russia and Ukraine and China and all that. No, I think if you look uh, over the last, again, over my career period, uh, I would say four or five or maybe even 6%. Uh, would be the running average that you see a lot of times, and, and as a as a mean mean average. So, I, I would I would definitely agree with you there. And I think that one of the things that we see as we look into that future of work into our crystal ball is that we're always looking for things that impact people, em, uh, employees, uh, uh, and and companies uh, uh, overall. When you look at, you mentioned uh, other technologies, augmented reality, virtual reality, mixed reality, chat, uh, GTP, uh, all the things that we know are on the cusp or actually in real use and accelerating today, uh, how do you think that's going to impact the way we hire, uh, the change in the job structures, the way we use real estate? Uh, overall, um, 
yeah, that's a huge question. You could chat. Yeah. You know, we could we could spend a week on that one alone or a month. But uh, these things are coming at us really fast. Sure. I was, I was just at an industry convention this last week in Chicago, uh, and I was uh, shocked and terrified that there wasn't a single presentation on AI. And it was, and it, and it was a real estate-based convention. Uh, and the impact of AI on employment and the impact of employment on occupancy and the, all of sure. the, this chain reaction of things and how that's going to impact the banks that have made the loans and the insurance companies that have made the investments. This ripple effect is staggering. And yet I think a lot of people have their head in the sand. They think it's for somebody else. Sure. And I think that's one of the real dangers of in chapter 10, I write about some of the strategies that you could adopt knowing all the information that I covered in the previous nine. Getting back to at least one aspect of your question, Frank, to me, it's silly to ignore AI within the context of real estate. If AI and automation and some of the immersive technologies like VR and AR mean that we don't need as many employees or as many employees in the office, then it's simply a matter of math. We don't need as many desks or floors or buildings. So even though I want to say that um, office occupancy is around 50% pre-pandemic levels. And just to give some context. In utilization, in, in actual use, about 50%. Correct. Yeah, um, okay. It varies by city and by country and, and by industry. But generally speaking, there's a chart that I cite in the book that compares, I think it's 97% um, pre-pandemic levels with air plane travel, restaurants, sporting events, those types of things, but office occupancy is 50%. And you are silly and, and not a particularly judicious fiduciary at, at your company if you just automatically renew a 10-year lease uh, with all these trends taking place. Sure. Employees don't want to be in the office Monday through Friday, nine to five. There was a LinkedIn study I saw a couple of days ago in the UK. It's something like three out of four employees will quit if compelled to return to the office five days a week. So the question becomes, what do you do with this information? And I agree with you, it is naive and quite frankly dangerous to pretend that you know, AI or immersive tech automation, some of the technologies that I discuss in the book will have zero impact on real estate. That's just foolish. No, I, I agree. When, when you reference 50% occupancy, there's two uh, uh, definitions, if you will, of occupancy, I think we need to make clear. Uh, one is the real estate industry's de definition. Uh, the, the, uh, they would say, uh, my building is 90% occupied because it's 90% leased and 90% and the leases are paying me revenue. The other is the corporate definition, which would say, I have a 10,000 feet of space, but people are only at their desk 50% of the time. And that, that's the occupancy you're talking about. Yeah, and that's a fair point and, and not to get too into the weeds here, but one of the statistics I discovered researching the book was around companies subleasing their office space. I know Dropbox one quarter made something like $14.7 million by subleasing its space. So again, if it wants to get into the office space business, it can continue to do that. More likely, they'll just rent fewer square feet in the future. Because why would you want that risk on your balance sheet? Um, it's in the short term, it's just risk mitigation that's a given. But long term, do you really want to compete with WeWork and some of the other companies that are doing co-working spaces or satellite offices? So, yeah, it's I agree with you. You can own the space, but that doesn't mean that it's constantly used. 
And the pandemic, I think, has um, accelerated, to your point from before, trends that were taking place, whether it's remote work or e-commerce. And now that hopefully we're post-pandemic or at least returning to this new normal, again, I just think it's foolish to think that people will willingly return to hour and a half commutes and uh, not um, take advantage of some of the new freedoms that they have with remote and hybrid work. No, I, I would agree with you. It's funny, that in our world of the flexible workspace, which is, is where I come from, um, <clears throat> we've seen a, a variety of cycles in the past. And uh, the one thing that we've seen consistent is that no one minds being in the office. No one is willing to commute if they can do anything to avoid it. It's the right. time that kills people and it's and sure. angry about it. It's a waste and it's a huge cost. On people. So those markets in particular that are dependent to, on importing their employees into the city, if you will, from 30 to 90 minutes away, London, Paris, New York, Chicago, uh, big markets that import people to work in the city and then they go home at night. Those are the ones I think that are going to be the most impacted. Uh, and that are actually going to have to repurpose a lot of those commercial buildings to lower the cost into residential so they can lower the residential cost so the people can afford to actually live in the city that they work. Yeah, it doesn't happen overnight. I know that some cities have already had some successes. I think Vancouver's one, British Columbia, uh, that did some major renovation work when they realized that people will not reverting to full-time office work, but you can't just, as you know, hit a switch. And in some cases, it's uh, read a bunch of articles on this in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. Logistically, it can be difficult, if not impossible, certainly expensive and time consuming to turn a commercial building into a residential one. But there is this opportunity in crisis. And to the extent that there is a massive housing shortage in the U.S., I've read that um, there are a lot of factors at play um, stemming from the financial crisis and student loan debt and supply and demand. But it is this opportunity for some buildings to get converted. But I, I don't think that we're going to convert anywhere near 100% of them. And there are going to be, um, despite our best efforts, um, some buildings that are going to have to stand. Maybe at best case, they'll be mis mixed use. Mm -hmm. But well, I, I think that, that, that that's right. I think a, a great number of the buildings will end up by design and by, by effort being mixed use. And you see right. this in other parts of the world. Uh, you see, um, uh, in other parts of the world, uh, if you look into the Middle East as a good example, or into Asia, you see a lot of the buildings there are multi-purpose buildings and doing quite well uh, as a result of it. So this is a phenomenon maybe that we should be uh, paying more attention to and looking oh, at. Oh, 100%. And not just fractional real estate, but fractional employment. Um, in that chapter of the book, I discuss fractional chief information or operating officers or certainly an organization like Google or Amazon needs a full-time CFO or CEO. But what if you're a four or 500 person growing company and you can't really afford to pay someone three or four bills a year as the CMO or chief legal counsel, but you do want to lock someone in for two to three days a week. So the fractions chapter is, is one that surprises people when they see the cover of the book because it's got this icon for a chapter, I'm sorry, for a fraction. But the more that I think about it, the more that even though it's a nascent trend, if the book is about these emerging forces, then it was almost irresponsible of me to ignore it.
Well, I, 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 I think you're right. And I don't think people are really focused on that. Um, when we talk about fractions, uh, uh, I think there, there are two things to be talking about and whether you've actually spoken about. Um, one is a fractional use of, of hardware, uh, um, um, the way that we're uh, working out of data centers now and sharing computers and sharing systems, et cetera. The other is a fractional use of people. Um, uh, some of that has happened by default, you know, uh, some people are, uh, uh, running two jobs without the, while they're working remotely with nobody knowing it, uh, there's a little bit of that going on, but, um, uh, the concept of, uh, expert for growth companies and an awful lot of companies that are, have these needs are startup or near startup, uh, mid-sized companies, uh, 10 to a hundred employee size companies and they can't afford uh, the, the full-time people at the skills skill levels that they need without great expense so kind of define fractional a little broader base for people if you could how how it will how it will impact and how how it's a, it's more than just a fad it's a it's a true trending structure that will stick as we go forward Oh, hundred uh, percent. A friend of mine is a fairly senior person at a consulting company here in Arizona. And on one of our walks, he said, I'd love to work four days a week and make 20% less. That would be ideal for me. So it's interesting that people have had this opportunity with, with COVID to reevaluate their lives and not, not for everyone. There's certainly people who need a, a full paycheck, but depending on your station in life, the idea that you could work say for a client or a company three days a week and do a side hustle, just take some time off. So yeah, I, I agree with you in the same way that you don't necessarily need to own your own servers. You can rent them from cloud computing companies like uh, AWS and, and Google and um, Microsoft with Azure. Um, you don't necessarily need to hire a full-time employee any more than you need to own a full-time building or even lease an entire floor. And there are startups that are trying to figure out creative ways for companies to accommodate this flexible, uncertain world. There may be times in which you need to ramp up or ramp down and a traditional 10 year office lease uh, doesn't really lend itself to that. So could you do something um, on a more flexible basis? And of course the answer is yes. So it's been uh, an interesting journey researching all these trends, but there are definitely startups that are aware of what's going on. And when I hear about companies attempting to mandate a full-time return to the office or poo-pooing some of the other things I mentioned in the book, I just kind of smile and say, all right, you can do that. But you know, these trends are in motion and I don't see how any one company, no matter how powerful, can stop them. Well, you know, even at the very bottom end of the, the startup phase, uh, let's assume you and I, as, as an example, we're uh, each going to start a company. Okay. Now we're going to go into the same venture capitalist and we're going to each ask them for a million dollars. And to your point on flexibility, um, um, I go in there and uh, I say, he, he's going to ask me what I'm going to do with the money. And I say, oh, I'm going to um, get an office. I'm going to hire a receptionist. Uh, I'm going to buy some furniture. Uh, I'm going to get some uh, equipment. Uh, and then I'm going to hire a couple programmers who are going to build this world changing software. And you go in there and you say, asked to, in response to the same question, uh, you say, oh, I'm going to move into uh, IWG or WeWork or Spaces or any good co-working center um, and hire some programmers and build my software. Who's he going to give the money to? 
It's funny that you mentioned that because I'm old enough to remember the days in which if you work from home, you weren't serious. You needed to be in a proper office. And now it's it's like things have flipped 180 degrees. Now, if you're to your point, spending a lot of money on an office, you could say, well, couldn't you spend that more on people and get together as needed, whether it's in a WeWork or another co-working space or even just a company retreat or something? Because I, I think it's insane on both ends. So I, I'm never going in the office as an employee. That's ridiculous. Or you can never work at home. You always have to be in the office. So to me, the future is hybrid. That work from home, WFH Research has put out for the last two, two and a half years, some fascinating data on attitudes for both employees and employers uh, with respect to remote work. And last time I checked, it's about three and two. So in other words, employees typically want three days remote. Companies are offering two. You know, that's not a huge chasm. Um, we are in sort of a zone of agreement there. Let's say it's two and a half or three or whatever. That's a lot different than one versus four or zero versus five. So I agree with you. There are lots of benefits to remote work. And certainly, as I've written about in previous books, tools like Microsoft Teams, Slack, Zoom have made remote and hybrid collaboration a lot easier. But you'll never hear me say that we never need to uh, meet our employees in person, break bread with them, shake their hands, do some sort of cheesy icebreaker game or grab drinks or lunch or whatever. Uh, there is something to be said for social capital. Uh, plenty of studies have manifested the, the inimical effects of proximity bias. Even though you may be working harder, you're at home, whereas I'm in the office and people think I'm working really hard, but I'm just schmoozing, I'm not getting anything done. Um, it's natural to think that I'm the hard worker and you're not because you're out of sight, out of mind. So you know, previous books have touched on those subjects. And this is why The Nine is the fourth in a series of books on the future of work and, and hopefully one that makes people think because there, there isn't really a simple solution. Um, this is not a tactical book right on the back of the book. Right. Huge letters. This is not a tactical book. So folks who are looking for listicles and top 10 lists are going to go wanting. But my favorite books are the ones that make you think. Well, I, I agree. They, they, they spawn, spawn some good ideas and, and move forward with it. You know, it, it is um, interesting uh, that uh, previously, as we look back in time, or at least as I look back in time, I say, well, what are the things that all companies need in order to succeed? Well, they have to have customers and they have to have access to capital. Uh, today, I would say customers, capital and flexibility. If they don't, if a company isn't flexible today, and we talk about the workplace a, a lot, um, but if they don't have overall flexibility, then they won't be able to march into the future of work successfully by comparison to those that do. So whether yeah. it's people or place or technology doesn't really matter. All three of those things you have to be highly flexible on today uh, and make it part of your plan. Yeah. And I think that's one of the challenges, because if you look at a lot of organizations, the people making the decisions are usually old white guys like me. And if you see some of the people mandating a return to work, well, it's probably because they had to deal with 90 minute commutes. And that's just how it was kind of like pledging a fraternity. You didn't like it when you got your ass smacked with a paddle, but damn it, it happened to you. And now it needs to happen to someone else as well. So I, I do think that there's this massive opportunity for organizations to steer into the skid. And that's kind of how I conclude the book. You can fight these trends. You can ignore them. You can try to get a little bit pregnant. But by effectively realizing, Frank, that artificial intelligence and automation and dispersed work um, workforces and the other ones that I mentioned in the book are here for good, then the better off I think you'll are um, for being successful in the future.
but rigidly adhering to past dogma, I think is unlikely to result in a successful outcome. No, I, I would certainly agree with that. You know, one thing that uh, you actually, one of the things that you start off with in the book in, in considering, uh, uh, and it's critical, uh, is the empowered employee. Um, how empowered do you believe the employees in the workplace are today relative to the past? And by comparison, where they need to be, how they're going to stay even or become even more empowered in the future? Uh, to answer your question, I, I think that they're much more empowered than they used to, but forget what I think. If you look at the data, it's pretty compelling. I believe that in the U.S., something like 70% of the population now approves of unions or has a favorable view of unions. That's the highest that it's been in, I think, five or six decades. Companies like Trader Joe's, Kickstarter, Starbucks, um, that have all been sort of branded as employee friendly have had to deal with union certification votes. I start the book off with the story of Google and how the tens of thousands of employees and a bunch of other independent contractors walked out over what happened with Andy Rubin, the former head of Android uh, with some sexual assault baggage. And I just was, when it was happening, put that in my head for future writing, thinking, wow, you've got an employee that employer that's notorious for perks like on-site massages. And everything. Yeah, everything. Absolutely. And employees there are going out on strike. That to me, if, if that doesn't scare the average CEO or small business owner, then I don't know what would. So I, I mean, we've seen this with the pandemic and, and yes, low interest rates had something to do with it. Certainly companies like Meta and Microsoft hired like Banshees and got ahead of their skis. That's one of the reasons that there've been so many layoffs now, but you know, if we look at even some of the series, um, whether it's the dropout on Hulu about Elizabeth Holmes from Theranos or uh, the, the Uber one, um, we super pumped, I think it's called. And um, some of the other ones, Dope, Dope Sick, about the Sackler brothers with Purdue um, Pharmaceuticals. We, we've seen a lot of these executives behaving badly and employees notice that. And even though their CEOs may not be evil, if you couple that with some of the layoffs, and some of these mandates to return to work when by all accounts, employees have been as if not more productive working remotely or in a hybrid fashion. I think that we've tapped into a lot of consternation among the employees uh, in the United States and in other countries, even in China, employees are rebelling against 996, this notion that you should work at least from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. six days per week. And people aren't, just aren't doing that as much. So. Well, I, I, don't, don't I don't think they did that in the Middle Ages, even. Uh, <laughs> you know, they, they, I'm not that old, but I'll take your word for it. Uh, yeah, it, it's. Uh, I am. Uh, uh, you know, I, I I think that there's certain cultures have made absolutely unrealistic demands on their people in, the, in the name of patriotism, if you will, uh, and and put uh, all sorts of outside pressures on people to do things that just aren't normal. Uh, sure. when, when you talk about unions, and I don't want to get into union good or bad and everything, but I want to talk about timing and trends a little bit. If employees are, if there's a huge employee demand, basically, and they have great security and all sorts of wonderful benefits, etc., um, do they demand more or less? I've, it's my experience that when people have more, they demand more. Uh, they're less threatened. Uh, as we go into a period that might be recessionary again, um, uh, 
I'm curious how many people value having a job versus having exactly the job under exactly the terms that they want, how, how that will play out. Um, just cause been there, done that and seen it a few times. Yeah. It's a great unknown and, and not just the potential for recession, but if you look about, uh, look at automation and the, the chapter in the book starts. Oh, sure. All, all, all these things drive, um, insecurity in the potential right. employee. Um, and is that insecurity, do they react with it by demanding security or by towing the line, so to speak? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's a complicated question and there are lots of factors at play. But yes, you could make the argument that in a year, if we do enter a deep recession and AI and automation really take off, then that does reduce employee empowerment and by extension reduce the effectiveness of unions, or maybe it will increase the effects of them. I mean, we just don't know. Yeah. Um, I don't pretend to wear a, um, a Swami hat and be able to predict the future. If I told you some of the stocks I sold at the prices at which I sold them, you'd go, I'm never going to listen to this guy again. But I, I just, I, I find it difficult to believe that employees will willingly revert to pre-pandemic conditions. As I've said many times before, Frank, if COVID had been two weeks or two months, effectively, it would have been a snow day. But it's been now you know, two, two plus years. years. Yeah. yeah, if you want to say three years, you wouldn't be wrong. Um, in which case, we really had the opportunity to ask some big, hairy questions. What does work mean? Should I be living to work? Should I be commuting three hours a day and not see my kid uh, when I get home, or, or be too tired, or you know, just not be present in my lives, or take care of myself, do hobbies, whatever? So, I am of the belief that the pendulum will swing, but I, I just don't see in the next three to five years, the return of a docile workforce. No, I, 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 I don't know whether docile or, or rebellious is the right term. Uh, but the workforce absolutely is in a, in a, a, chan, a, a sense of change. Uh, and I think that the employer, if you look at the two, groups as separately a little bit because the employer is also part of the workforce, the executive sure. teams, um, um, uh, are going to ultimately be the ones that will be demanding change uh, as well. Yeah, they won't be able to keep up. They won't be able to get the best talent. They won't be able to do accomplish their, their corporate goals and protect their shareholders if they aren't competitive. And so competition, whether it's national competition or corporate competition is going to drive uh, a lot of the decisions that are made uh, and the success of certain companies over others will be the models that we'll be looking at. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. And one of the stats that I cite in the book is something like, um, it's almost a political 89% of Democrats, 81% of Republicans want a fair degree of remote work or flexibility. This notion that an employer or CEO could say, well, we're not offering that, I think offers a number of significant downsides, one of which is, well, all right, employees may not quit tomorrow, although in some cases they have in, in mass, um, but then you see the talented folks move away. And then you, you know, Steve Jobs famously said, I don't want to lower the bar because if we've got B players, they'll hire C players, and it's just a race to the bottom. We want the most talented folks possible, and the most talented folks are clearly saying we want flexibility with respect to where we work. So I just I reject the notion that someone like an Elon Musk can will a company to 
um, bend a company to his will. Um, I think it's short-sighted. I, I just, I don't think that it's practical for most companies. And even if employees stay, I, I think they'll be updating their resumes pretty soon. Well, let's use Elon Musk is a good example. Uh, if he is short-sighted, he also changes his mind a lot. So um, maybe his short-sightedness is short-focused. I mean, you know, he, he does change his mind a lot. Uh, so maybe he's just a fast learner. Who knows? Uh, Who knows? And and I agree. I mean, if, if you're I think, like one of the uh, questions they ask at Google is tell me about a time that you changed your mind. And if you can't come up with an answer, they don't want to hire you because even if you're presented with conflicting data, you're so stubborn that you're just going to march along your path. I think the, the challenge, though, is that if you are so mercurial and are making decisions by the seat of your pants, you're really affecting people's lives. Yep. So do you really want to work for a CEO who's going to wake up one day and make some sort of mandate only to reverse it, only to reverse it again? I, I, I do think that there is something to be said for the employee-friendly organization that will have to go through the trials and tribulations, right? I'm very much a capitalist, but even in the end of the book, I write about how the business roundtable has formally adopted a stance that the goal of an organization should not be just to maximize shareholder profits, but to consider other stakeholders. Companies like Kickstarter, thousands of others have become B corporations and effectively codified sure. the need not to um, make as much money as possible, the consequences be damned. So I think, long story short, Frank, I think that we've arrived at an inflection point. And as I write in the end of the book, do with that information what you will. But I think that the intelligent and sustainable path is to steer into the skid, embrace these trends, try to figure it out rather than pretending that they're just going to be fads. Because I just, I think too much has happened in too short a period of time at the beginning of COVID. And now that we're three years in, um, it's just it, pretending that COVID never happened, I just think is a fool's errand. No, I would agree. I think inflection point is a good point. Uh, uh, to uh, for us to probably uh, sum up real quickly, as we're starting to run a little long, uh, I think we could go for quite quite some time on this. Uh, uh, so uh, steer into the skid. I, I like that an analogy, and I, I I like that concept a lot because we are going to be on a kind of a rough rocky road for for a while as we we go through a period of change. Um, one last thought you want to leave us with, Phil, that uh, seems to be. Uh, sum everything up that uh, you'd like to? I just wanted to thank you for the opportunity and hopefully people will check out the book. Um, I don't expect everyone to agree with everything, uh, analysis, synthesis, predictions, interpretations, but um, you know, I, I like to think that it's my, my best work yet and, and certainly relevant. Um, I'm writing about things that in some cases happened last month or late February. So um, hopefully well, people will find it relevant. Uh, a lot of people know me and they know that I'm a news freak and that I'm a, a current events freak and I don't read a lot of business books, uh, but I read the nine. I liked it. I agree with it and I would recommend it highly. Uh, it, 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 it creates good perspective on things that people haven't ordinarily thought of yet, which is the problem most books I have read is their three-year-old thinking, but the nine is current. Uh, so I would uh, do everything uh, possible to recommend it. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Okay. Phil, thank you. We'll look forward to the next time. Take care. Thanks a lot. Enjoyed it. Bye-bye. If it's impacting the future of work, it's in the Future of Work podcast by allwork.space. Are you ready?